0: Men at Arms by Terry Pratchett, read by Nigel Planer. Corporal Carrot, Ankh-Morpork City Guard Watch, sat down in his nightshirt, took up his pencil, sucked the end for a moment, and then wrote, "'Dearest Mum and Dad, "'well, here is another fine turn-up for the books, "'for I have been made corporal. "'It means another five dollars a month, "'plus also I have a new jerkin with two stripes upon it as well, "'and a new copper badge. "'It is a great responsibility.' This is all because we have got new recruits, because the patrician, who, as I have formerly vouchsafed, is the ruler of the city, has agreed the watch must reflect the ethnic makeup of the city. Carrot paused for a moment and stared out of the small dusty bedroom window at the early evening sunlight, sidling across the river. Then he bent over the paper again which I do not fully understand, but must have something to do with the dwarf Grabpot Thundergust's cosmetic factory. Also, Captain Vimes, of whom I have often written to you of, is leaving the watch to get married and become a fine gentleman, and I'm sure we wish him all the best. He taught me all I know, apart from the things I taught myself.' "'We are clubbing together to get him a surprise present. "'I thought one of those new watches that don't need demons to make them go, "'and we could inscribe on the back something like "'a watch from your old friends in the watch. "'This is a pun or play on words. "'We do not know who will be the new captain. "'Sergeant Colon says he will resign if it's him. "'Corporal Nobbs!' "'Carrot stared out of the window again. His big, honest forehead wrinkled with effort as he tried to think of something positive to say about Corporal Nobs. "'Is more suited in his current role, and I have not been in the watch long enough, so we shall just have to wait and see.' It began, as many things do, with a death and a burial on a spring morning, with mist on the ground so thick that it poured into the grave and the coffin was lowered into a cloud. A small greyish mongrel, host to so many assorted doggy diseases that it was surrounded by a cloud of dust, watched impassively from the mound of earth. Various elderly female relatives cried, but Edward de'Eth didn't cry for three reasons. He was the eldest son, the thirty-seventh Lord de'Eth, and it was not done for a de'Eth to cry. He was, just, the diploma still had the crackle in it, an assassin. And assassins didn't cry at a death, otherwise they'd never be stopping. And he was angry. In fact, he was enraged. Enraged at having to borrow money for this poor funeral. Enraged at the weather, at this common cemetery, at the way the background noise of the city didn't change in any way, even on such an occasion as this. Enraged at history. It was never meant to be like this. It shouldn't have been like this. He looked across the river to the brooding bulk of the palace, and his anger screwed itself up and became a lens. Edward had been sent to the Assassin's Guild because they had the best school for those whose social rank is rather higher than their intelligence. If he'd been trained as a fool, he'd have invented satire and made dangerous jokes about the patrician. If he'd been trained as a thief, but no gentleman would dream of being trained as a thief, he'd have broken into the palace and stolen something very valuable from the patrician. However, He'd been sent to the Assassins. That afternoon, he sold what remained of the de estates and enrolled again at the Guild School for the postgraduate course. He got full marks, the first person in the history of the Guild ever to do so. His seniors described him as a man to watch, and because there was something about him that made even assassins uneasy, preferably from a long way away. In the cemetery, the solitary grave-digger filled in the hole that was the last resting place of De'Eth Senior. He became aware of what seemed to be thoughts in his head. They went something like this. Any chance of a bone? No, no, sorry, bad taste there, forget I mentioned it. You've got beef sandwiches in your what's name, lunchbox thingy, though. Why not give one to the nice little doggy over there? The man leaned on his shovel and looked around. The grey mongrel was watching him intently. It said, Whoa. It took Edward de Eth five months to find what he was looking for. The search was hampered by the fact that he did not know what he was looking for, only that he'd know when he found it. Edward was a great believer in destiny. Such people often are. The Guild Library was one of the largest in the city. In certain specialised areas, it was the largest. These areas mainly had to do with the regrettable brevity of human life and the means of bringing it about. Edward spent a lot of time there, often at the top of a ladder, often surrounded by dust. He read every known work on armaments. He didn't know what he was looking for, and he found it in a note in the margin of an otherwise very dull and inaccurate treatise on the ballistics of crossbows. He copied it out carefully. Edward spent a lot of time among history books as well. The Assassin's Guild was an association of gentlemen of breeding, and people like that regard the whole of recorded history as a kind of stock book. There were a great many books in the Guild library, and a whole portrait gallery of kings and queens, often with discreet plaques under them, modestly recording the name of the person who'd killed them. This was the Assassin's Portrait Gallery, after all. And Edward Death came to know their aristocratic faces better than he did his own. He spent his lunch hours there, It was said later that he came under bad influences at this stage, but the secret of the history of Edward de Eth was that he came under no outside influences at all. Unless you count all those dead kings. He just came under the influence of himself. That's where people get it wrong. Individuals aren't naturally paid-up members of the human race, except biologically. They need to be bounced around by the Brownian motion of society, which is a mechanism by which human beings constantly remind one another that they are, well, human beings. He was also spiralling inwards, as tends to happen in cases like this. He'd had no plan. He'd just retreated, as people do when they feel under attack, to a more defensible position, i.e. the past. And then something happened which had the same effect on Edward as finding a playasaur in his goldfish pond would on a student of ancient reptiles. He'd stepped out, blinking in the sunlight one hot afternoon, after a day spent in the company of departed glory, and had seen the face of the past strolling by, nodding amiably to people. He hadn't been able to control himself. He'd said, ''Hey, you, uh, who are you?'' The past had said, "Corporal Carrot, sir, watch, Mr. De'Eth, isn't it? Can I help you?'' ''What? Uh, no, no, uh, b- b- be about your b- b- business.'' <clears throat> the past nodded and smiled at him and strolled on into the future. Carrot stopped staring at the wall. "'I have expended three dollars on an iconograph box, "'which is a thing with a brown eye inside that paints pictures of things. "'This is all the rage these days. "'Please find enclosed pictures of my room and my friends in the watch. "'Nobby is the one making the humorous gesture, "'but he is a rough diamond and a good soul deep down.' He stopped again. Carrot wrote home at least once a week. Dwarfs generally did. Carrot was two metres tall, but he'd been brought up as a dwarf, and then further up as a human. Literary endeavour did not come easily to him, but he persevered. The weather, he wrote very slowly and carefully, continues very hot. Edward could not believe it. He checked the records, he double-checked, he asked questions, and because they were innocent enough questions, people gave him answers. And finally, he took a holiday in the Ramtops, where careful questioning led him to the dwarf mines around Copperhead, and thence to an otherwise unremarkable glade in a beechwood, where, sure enough, a few minutes of patient digging unearthed traces of charcoal. He spent the whole day there. When he'd finished carefully replacing the leaf mould as the sun went down, he was quite certain... Ankh-Morpork had a king again. And this was right. And it was fate that had let Edward recognise this just when he'd got his plan. And it was right that it was fate, and the city would be saved from its ignoble present by its glorious past. He had the means, and he had the end, and so on. Edward's thoughts often ran like this. He could think in italics. Such people need watching, preferably from a safe distance. "'I was interested in your letter where you said people have been coming and asking about me. "'This is amazing. I have been here hardly five minutes, and already I am famous. "'I was very pleased to hear about the opening of number seven shaft. "'I don't mind telling you that although I am very happy here, I miss the good times back home. "'Sometimes on my day off I go and sit in the cellar and hit my head with an axe-handle.' but it is not the same. Hoping this finds you in good health, yours faithfully, your loving son adopted, Carrot. He folded the letter up, inserted the iconographs, sealed it with a blob of candle wax pressed into place with his thumb, and put it in his pants pocket. Dwarf mail to the ram tops was quite reliable. More and more dwarfs were coming to work in the city, and because dwarfs are very conscientious, many of them sent money home. This made dwarf mail just about as safe as anything, since their mail was closely guarded. Dwarfs are very attached to gold. Any highwayman demanding your money or your life had better bring a folding chair and a packed lunch and a book to read while the debate goes on. Then Carrot washed his face, donned his leather shirt and trousers and chainmail, buckled on his breastplate, and with his helmet under his arm, stepped out cheerfully, ready to face whatever the future would bring. This was another room somewhere else. It was a pokey room, the plaster walls crumbling, the ceiling sagging like the underside of a fat man's bed. And it was made even more crowded by the furniture. It was old, good furniture, but this wasn't the place for it. It belonged in high, echoing halls. Here it was crammed. There were dark oak chairs, there were long sideboards, there was even a suit of armour. There was barely room for the half-dozen or so people who sat at the huge table. There was barely room for the table. A clock ticked in the shadows. The heavy velvet curtains were drawn, even though there was still plenty of daylight left in the sky. The air was stifling, both from the heat of the day and the candles in the magic lantern. The only illumination was from the screen, which at that moment was portraying a very good profile of Corporal Carrot Ironfounderson. A small but very select audience watched it with carefully blank expressions of people who are half convinced that their host is several cards short of a full deck, but are putting up with it because they've just eaten a meal and it would be rude to leave too soon. "'Well,' said one of them, "'I think I've seen him walking around the city. So, he's just a watchman, Edward?' Of course, it is essential that he should be a humble station in life it all fits the classic p- 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 pattern Edward de death gave a signal. there was a click as another glass slide was slotted in. This one was not p- 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 painted from life King p- p- Paragore, taken from an old p, p-, p- painting this one click is King Veltrick the Third from another p p portrait. This one is Queen Alguina the Fourth. Note the line of the chin. This one click is a sevenpenny purp piece from the reign of Webblethorpe the Unconscious. Note again the detail of the chin and the general b b bone structure, and this click, is an upside d-, d-, d down picture of a vase of flowers d d, d-, d- delphiniums, I believe. Why is this? Uh sorry, mister Edward. I had a few glass plates left, and the demons weren't tired. And uh next slide, please, and then you may l- leave us. Yes, mister Edward. Report to the d, d- duty torturer, Yes, Mr. Edward. Click. And this is a rather good... uh, Well done, Blenkin. uh, Image of the bust of Queen Coana. Thank you, Mr. Edward. More of her face would have enabled us to be certain of the likeness, however. There is sufficient, I believe. You may go, Blenkin. Yes, Mr. Edward. A little something off the ears, I think... Yes, Mr. Edward. The servant respectfully shut the door behind him and then went down to the kitchen, shaking his head sadly. The Deaths hadn't been able to afford a family torturer for years. For the boy's sake, he'd just have to do the best he could with a kitchen knife. The visitors waited for the host to speak, but he didn't seem about to do so, although it was sometimes hard to tell with Edward. When he was excited, he suffered not so much from a speech impediment as from misplaced pauses as if his brain were temporarily putting his mouth on hold. Eventually, one of the audience said, Very well, so. Uh, what is your point? You've seen the l- likeness. Isn't it obvious? Oh, come now. Edward de F pulled a leather case towards him and began undoing the thongs. But. but the boy was adopted by Discworld. Dwarfs They found him as a baby in the forests of the Ramtop Mountains. There were some b- 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 burning wagons, corpses, that sort of thing. B- Bandits attack, apparently. The dwarfs found a sword in the wreckage. He has it now. A very old sword, and it's always sh- sh- sharp. So the world is full of old swords and grindstones. This one had been very well hidden in one of the carts, which had b- b- broken up. Strange, one would expect it to be ready to hand, yes, to be used, in b- 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 bandit country. And then the boy grows up and, and fate conspires that he and his sword come to Ankh-Morpork, where he is currently a watchman in the night watch. I couldn't b- b- believe it. That's still not. Edward raised his hand a moment and then pulled out a package from the case. I made careful inquiries, you know, and was able to find the place where the attack occurred. A most careful search of the ground revealed old cart n- n- nails a few c-copper coins, and in some charcoal, this, they craned to see. Looks like a ring. Yes, it's, it, it, it's superficially discoloured, of course, otherwise someone would have spotted it probably secreted somewhere on a cart i've had it p- p- partly cleaned you can just read the inscription now here is an illustrated inventory of the royal jewellery of ankh done in am907 in the reign of king T- 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 Tyrrell. may i p- please draw your attention to the small wedding ring in the p- p- bottom left-hand corner of the p- page You will see that the artist has helpfully drawn the inscription. It took several minutes for everyone to examine it. They were naturally suspicious people. They were all descendants of people for whom suspicion and paranoia had been prime survival traits, because they were all aristocrats. Not one among them did not know the name of his or her great-great-great-grandfather, and what embarrassing disease he died of. They had just eaten a not very good meal, which had, however, included some ancient and worthwhile wines. They'd attended because they'd all known Edward's father, and the Deaths were a fine old family, if now in very reduced circumstances. "'So you see,' said Edward proudly, "'the evidence is overwhelming. We have a king!' His audience tried to avoid looking at one another's faces. "'I thought you'd be p-p-pleased,' said Edward.' Finally, Lord Rust voiced the unspoken consensus. There was no room in those true blue eyes for pity, which was not a survival trait, but sometimes it was possible to risk a little kindness. Edward, he said, the last king of Arkmorpork died centuries ago. Executed by t t t t t t t Even if a descendant could still be fined, the royal blood would be somewhat watered down by now, don't you think? The royal blood cannot be watered down. Ah, thought Lord Rust, so he's that kind. Young Edward thinks the touch of a king can cure scrofula as if royalty was the equivalent of a sulphur ointment. "'Young Edward thinks that there is no lake of blood too big to wade through "'to put a rightful king on a throne, "'no deed too base in defence of a crown. "'A romantic, in fact. "'Lord Rust was not a romantic. "'The Rusts had adapted well to Ankh-Morpork's post-monarchy centuries "'by buying and selling and renting and making contacts "'and doing what aristocrats have always done, "'which is trim sails and survive. "'Well, maybe.' he conceded in the gentle tones of someone trying to talk someone else off a ledge. But we must ask ourselves, does Ankh-Morpork, at this point in time, require a king? Edward looked at him as though he were mad. Need? Need? While our fair city languishes under the heel of the tyrant? Oh, you mean Vetinari? Can't you see what he's d- d- done to this city? He is a very unpleasant, jumped-up little man, said Lady Salachi, but I would not say he actually terrorizes much, not mm, as such. You have to hand it to him, said Viscount Skater. The city operates, more or less, Fellows and whatnot do things. The streets are safer than they used to be under Mad Lord Snapcase, said Lady Salachi. S safer veterinari set up the th-, th thieves guild shouted Edward. Yes, yes, of course. Very reprehensible, certainly. On the other hand, a modest annual payment and one walks in safety. He always says, said Lord Rust, that if you're going to have a crime, it might as well be organized crime. Seems to me said Viscount Skater, that all the guild chappies put up with him because anyone else would be worse, yes? We've certainly had some um, difficult ones. Anyone remember Homicidal Lord Windor? Deranged Lord Harmony, said Lord Monflathers. <laughs> Laughing Lord Scapula, said Lady Salachi, a man with a very pointed sense of humour. Mind you, Vetinarvi, there's something not entirely, Lord Rust began... ''I know what you mean,'' said Viscount Skater. ''I don't like the way he always knows what you're thinking before you think it.'' ''Everyone knows the assassins have set his fee at a million dollars,'' said Lady Salachi. ''That's how much it would cost to have him killed.'' ''One can't help feeling,'' said Lord Rust, ''that it would cost a lot more than that to make sure he stayed dead.'' ''Ye gods, what happened to pride? What happened to honour? They perceptibly jumped as the last Lord eth thrust himself out of his chair. "'Will you listen to yourselves? Please, look at you. What man among you has not seen his family name degraded since the days of the kings? Can't you remember the men your forefathers were?' He strode rapidly around the table so that they had to turn to watch him. He pointed an angry finger. You, Lord Rust, your ancestor was c- c- created a b- b- baron after single handedly killing thirty seven Platchians while armed with nothing more than a b- b- pin. Isn't that so? Yes, but you, sir, Lord Monflathers, the first Duke, led six hundred men to a glorious and epic defeat at the b- 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 Battle of Querm. Does that mean n- n- nothing? And you, Lord Venturi, and you, Sir George, sitting in ankh in your old houses with your old names and your old money, while g-guilds, guilds, rag tags of tradesmen and merchants, guilds, I say, have a voice in the r-, r r running of the city. He reached a bookshelf in two strides and threw a huge leather bound book on the table, where it upset Lord Rust's glass. "'Twerp's p-p-p-peerage!' he shouted. "'We all have pages in there. "'We own it. "'But this man has you mesmerised. "'I assure you he is flesh and blood, a mere mortal. "'No one dares remove him because they think it would make things a little bit worse for themselves. "'Ye gods!' "'His audience looked glum. "'It was all true, of course, if you put it that way. "'And it didn't sound any better coming from a wild-eyed, pompous young man.' Yes, yes, the good old days, tower in spires and pennants and chivalry and all that, said Viscount Skater, ladies in pointy hats, chappies in armour, bashing one another and what not. But you know, we have to move with the times. It was a g- g- golden age, said Edward. My God, thought Lord Rust, he actually does believe it. You see, dear boy, said Lady Salachi, a few chance likenesses and a piece of jewelry, that doesn't really add up to much, does it? My nurse told me, said Viscount Skater, that a true king could pull a sword from a stone. Ah, yes, and cure Dandruff, said Lord Rust. That's just a legend. That's not real. Anyway, I've always been a bit puzzled about that story. What's so hard about pulling a sword out of a stone? The real work's already been done. You ought to make yourself useful and find the man who put the sword in the stone in the first place. Eh? There was a sort of relieved laughter. That's what Edward remembered. It all ended up in laughter. Not exactly at him, but he was the type of person who always takes laughter personally. Ten minutes later, Edward de Eth was alone. They're being so nice about it, moving with the times. He'd expected more than that of them, a lot more. He dared to hope that they might be inspired by his lead. He'd pictured himself at the head of an army. Blenkin came in at a respectful shuffle. ''I saw them all off, Mr. Edward,'' he said. ''Thank you, Blenkin. You may clear the table.'' ''Yes, Mr. Edward.'' ''Whatever happened to honour Blenkin?'' know, sir. I never took it.'' ''They didn't want to listen.'' ''No, sir. They didn't want to... Bl- 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 listen.'' Edward sat by the dying fire with a dog-eared copy of Thigh-Biter's The Ankh-Morpork Succession open on his lap. Dead kings and queens looked at him reproachfully. And there it might have ended. In fact, it did end there in millions of universes. Edward de Eth grew older, and obsession turned to a sort of bookish insanity of the gloves with the fingers cut out and the carpet slippers variety, and became an expert on royalty, although no one ever knew this because he seldom left his rooms. Corporal Carrot became Sergeant Carrot, and in the fullness of time died in uniform, aged 70, in an unlikely accident involving an anteater. In a million universes, Lance Constables Cuddy and Detritus didn't fall through the hole. In a million universes, Vimes didn't find the pipes. In one strange but theoretically possible universe, the watch house was redecorated in pastel colours by a freak whirlwind, which also repaired the door latch and did a few other odd jobs around the place. In a million universes, the watch failed. In a million universes, this was a very short book. Edward dozed off with the book on his knees and had a dream. He dreamed of glorious struggle. Glorious was another important word in his personal vocabulary, like honour. If traitors and dishonourable men would not see the truth, then he, Edward de Eth, was the finger of destiny. The problem with destiny, of course is that she is often not careful where she puts her finger. Captain Sam Vimes, Ankh-Morpork City Guard, Night Watch, sat in the drafty anteroom to the patrician's audience chamber with his best cloak on and his breastplate polished and his helmet on his knees. He stared woodenly at the wall. He ought to be happy, he told himself, and he was, in a way. Definitely, happy as anything. He was going to get married in a few days, he was going to stop being a guard. He was going to be a gentleman of leisure. He took off his copper badge and buffed it absent-mindedly on the edge of his cloak. Then he held it up so that the light glinted off the patterned surface. A.M.C.W. number 177. He sometimes wondered how many other guards had had the badge before him. Well, now someone was going to have it after him. This is Ankh-Morpork, City of One Thousand Surprises, according to the Guild of Merchants' guidebook. What more need be said? A sprawling place, home to a million people, greatest of cities in the Discworld, located on either side of the river Arnk, a waterway so muddy that it looks as if it's flowing upside down. And visitors say, How does such a big city exist? What keeps it going? Since it's got a river you can chew, where does the drinking water come from? What is in fact the basis of its civic economy? How come it, against all probability, works? Actually, visitors don't often say this. They usually say things like, which way to the, you know, the, uh, you know, the the young ladies, right? But if they started thinking with their brains for a little while, that's what they'd be thinking. The patrician of Ankh-Morpork sat back on his austere chair with the sudden bright smile of a very busy person at the end of a crowded day who suddenly found in his schedule a reminder saying, seven o'clock to five past seven, be cheerful and relaxed and a people person. Well, of course, I was very saddened to receive your letter, Captain. Yes, sir, said Vimes, still as wooden as a furniture warehouse. Please sit down, Captain. Yes, sir. Vimes remained standing. It was a matter of pride. But of course, I quite understand. The Ramkin country estates are very extensive, I believe. I'm sure Lady Ramkin will appreciate your strong right hand. Sir? Captain Vimes, while in the presence of the ruler of the city, always concentrated his gaze on a point one foot above and six inches to the left of the man's head. And, of course, you will be quite a rich man, Captain. Yes, sir. I hope you have thought about that. You will have new responsibilities. Yes, sir. It dawned on the patrician that he was working on both ends of this conversation. He shuffled through the papers on his desk. And of course I shall have to promote a new chief officer for the night watch, said the patrician. Have you any suggestions, Captain? Vimes appeared to descend from whatever cloud his mind had been occupying. This was guard work. Well, not Fred Colon. He's one of nature's sergeants. Sergeant Colon, Ankh-Morpork City Guard Nightwatch, surveyed the bright faces of the new recruits. He sighed. He remembered his first day. Old Sergeant Wimbler. What a tartar. Tongue like a whiplash. If the old boy had lived to see this. What was it called? Oh, yeah. Affirmative Action Hiring Procedure or something. "'Silicon Anti-Defamation League had been going on at the patrician, and now... "'Try it one more time, Lance Constable Detritus, he said. "'The trick is, you stops your hand just above your ear. "'Now just get up off the floor and try saluting just one more time. "'Now then, Lance Constable Cuddy!' "'Here?' "'Where?' "'In front of you, sergeant.' Colon looked down and took a step back. The swelling curve of his more than adequate stomach moved aside to reveal the upturned face of Lance Constable Cuddy with its helpful, intelligent expression and one glass eye. Oh, right. I'm taller than I look. "'Oh, gods,' thought Sergeant Colon wearily. "'Add up and divide by two and you've got two normal men, "'except normal men don't join the guard. "'A troll and a dwarf, and that ain't the worst of it.' "'Vimes drummed his fingers on the desk. "'Not Colon, then,' he said. "'He's not as young as he was. "'Time he stayed in the watch-house keeping up on the paperwork. "'Besides, he's got a lot on his plate.' "'Sergeant Colon has always had a lot on his plate, I should say,' said the patrician. "'With the new recruits I made,' said Vimes, meaningfully. "'You remember, sir?' "'The ones you told me I had to have,' he added, in the privacy of his head. "'They weren't to go in the day-watch, of course, "'and those bastards in the palace guard wouldn't take them either. "'Oh, no, put them in the night-watch, because it's a joke anyway, "'and no one will really see them. "'No one important, anyway.' Vimes had only given in because he knew it wouldn't be his problem for long. It wasn't as if he was speciesist, he told himself, but the watch was a job for men. How about Corporal Nobbs, said the patrician. Nobby? They shared a mental picture of Corporal Nobbs. No. No. (sighs) No. Then, of course, there is, the patrician smiled, Corporal Carrot, a fine young man already making a name for himself, I gather. That's true, said Vimes. A further promotion opportunity, perhaps? I would value your advice. Vimes formed a mental picture of Corporal Carrot. This, said Corporal Carrot, is the Hubwood's Gate to the whole city, which is what we guard. What from... "'said Lance Constable Angua, the last of the new recruits. "'Oh, you know, barbarian hordes, warring tribesmen, bandit armies, um, that sort of thing.' "'What, just us?' "'Us? Oh, no!' Carrot laughed. "'That'd be silly, wouldn't it? "'No, if you see anything like that, you just ring your bell as hard as you like.' "'What happens then?' Sergeant Colon and Nobby and the rest of them will come running along just as soon as they can. Lance Constable Angua scanned the hazy horizon. She smiled. Carrot blushed. Constable Angua had mastered saluting first go. She wouldn't have a full uniform yet. Not until someone had taken, uh, well, let's face it, a breastplate, along to old Remit, the armourer, and told him to beat it out really, well, here and... "'and here, and no helmet in the world "'would ever cover all that mass of ash-blonde hair. "'But it occurred to Carrot "'Constable Angua wouldn't need any of that stuff, really. "'People would be queuing up to get arrested.' "'So what do we do now?' she said. "'Proceed back to the watch-house, I suppose,' said Carrot. "'Sergeant Colon will be reading out the evening report, I expect.' "'She'd mastered proceeding, too.' "'It's a special walk devised by beat officers throughout the multiverse. "'A gentle lifting of the instep, a careful swing of the leg, "'a walking pace that can be kept up hour after hour, street after street. "'Lance Constable Detritus wasn't going to be ready to learn "'proceeding' for some time, "'or at least until he stopped knocking himself out every time he saluted. "'Sergeant Colon,' said "Angua, "'he was the fat one, yes?' "'That's right. "'Why has he got a pet monkey?' "'Ah!' "'said Carrot. "'I think it is Corporal Nobbs to whom you refer. "'Is human? "'He's got a face like a join-the-dots puzzle. "'He does have a very good collection of boils, poor man. "'He does tricks with them. "'Just never get between him and a mirror.' "'Not many people were on the streets. "'It was too hot even for an Arkmore pork summer. "'Heat radiated from every surface. "'The river slunk sullenly in the bottom of its bed, "'like a student around eleven a.m.' People with no pressing business out of doors lurked in cellars and only came out at night. Carrot moved through the baking streets with a proprietorial air and a slight patiner of honest sweat, occasionally exchanging a greeting. Everyone knew Carrot. He was easily recognisable. No one else was about two metres tall with flame-red hair. Besides, he walked as if he owned the city. "'Who was that man with the granite face I saw in the watchhouse? said Angua as they proceeded along the broadway. ''That was Detritus the troll,'' said Carrot. ''He used to be a bit of a criminal, but now he's courting Ruby. She says he's got to...'' ''No, that man,'' said Angua, learning, as had so many others, that Carrot tended to have a bit of trouble with metaphors. ''Faced like th, face like someone very disgruntled.'' ''Oh, that was Captain Vimes. But he's never been gruntled, I think. He's retiring at the end of the week and getting married.'' ''Doesn't look very happy about it,'' said Angua. ''Couldn't say.'' ''I don't think he likes the new recruits.'' The other thing about Constable Carrot was that he was incapable of lying. ''Well, he doesn't like trolls very much,'' he said. ''We couldn't get a word out of him all day when he heard we had to advertise for a troll recruit. And then we had to have a dwarf, otherwise they'd be trouble. I'm a dwarf too, but the dwarfs here don't believe it.'' ''You don't say?'' said Angua, looking up at him. My mother had me by adoption. Oh, yes, but I'm not a troll or a dwarf, said Angua sweetly. No, but you're a... W-. Angua stopped. That's it, is it? Good grief, this is the century of the fruit bat, you know. Ye gods, does he really think like that? He's a bit set in his ways. Congealed, I should think. The patrician said we had to have a bit of representation from the minority groups, said Carrot. Minority groups? Sorry. Anyway, he's only got a few more days. There was a splintering noise across the street. They turned as a figure sprinted out of a tavern and haired away up the street, closely followed, or at least for a few steps, by a fat man in an apron. Stop! Stop! Unlicensed thief! "'Ah!' said Carrot. "'He crossed the road with Angua padding along behind him, "'as the fat man slowed to a waddle. "'Morning, Mr. Flannel,' he said. "'Bit of trouble.' "'He took seven dollars, and I never saw no thief license,' "'said Mr. Flannel. "'What are you going to do about it? "'I pay my taxes.' "'We shall be hotly in pursuit any moment,' "'said Carrot calmly, taking out his notebook. Seven dollars, was it?' Uh, "'At least fourteen. "'Mr. Flannel looked Angua up and down.' Men seldom missed the opportunity. "'Why's she got a helmet on?' he said. "'She's a new recruit, Mr. Flannel.' Angua gave Mr. Flannel a smile. He stepped back. "'But she's uh, uh, a... "'Got to move with the times, Mr. Flannel,' said Carrot, putting his notebook away. Mr. Flannel drew his mind back to business. "'In the meantime, there's eighteen dollars of mine "'that I won't see again,' he said sharply. "'Oh, nil desperandum, Mr. Flannel, nil desperandum,' "'said Carrot cheerfully. "'Come, Constable Angua, let us proceed upon our inquiries.' "'He proceeded off, with Flannel staring at them with his mouth open. "'Don't forget my twenty-five dollars!' he shouted. "'Aren't you going to chase the man?' said Angua, running to keep up. "'No point,' said Carrot, "'stepping sideways into an alley that was so narrow as to be barely visible. "'He strolled between the damp moss-grown walls in deep shadow.' "'Interesting thing,' he said, "'I bet there's not many people know "'that you can get to Zephyr Street from Broadway. "'You ask anyone. "'They'll say you can't get out of the other end of Shirt Alley. "'But you can, because all you do, you go up Maumier Street, "'and then you can squeeze between these bollards here "'into Borborygmic Lane. "'Good, aren't they? Very good, Iron. "'And here we are in Whillam Alley.' "'He wandered to the end of the alley "'and stood listening for a while.' What are we waiting for? said Angua. There was the sound of running feet. Carrot leaned against the wall and stuck out one arm into Zephyr Street. There was a thud. Carrot's arm didn't move an inch. It must have been like running into a girder. They looked down at the unconscious figure. Silver dollars rolled across the floor. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, said Carrot. Poor old Heron now. He promised me he was going to give it up, too. Oh well. He picked up a leg. "'How much money?' he said. "'Looks like three dollars,' said Angua. "'Well done, the exact amount.' "'No, the shopkeeper said—' "'Come on, back to the watch-house. "'Come on, here and now, it's your lucky day.' "'Was it his lucky day?' said Angua. "'He was caught, wasn't he?' "'Yes, by us. "'Thieves Guild didn't get him first. "'They aren't so kind as us.' "'Here and now's head bounced from cobblestone to cobblestone.' "'Pinching three dollars and then trotting straight home,' sighed Carrot. "'That's here and now, worst thief in the world.' "'But you said Thieves Guild!' "'When you've been here a while, you'll understand how it all works,' said Carrot, "'here and now's head banged on the curb. "'Eventually,' Carrot added, "'but it all does work. You'd be amazed. It all works. I wish it didn't. But it does.' While here and now was being mildly concussed on the way to the safety of the Watch's jail, a clown was being killed. He was ambling along an alley with the assurance of one who was fully paid up this year with a thieves' guild when a hooded figure stepped out in front of him. Bino, Oh, hello. It's uh, Edward, right? The figure hesitated. I was just going back to the guild, said Bino. The hooded figure nodded. Uh, are you okay? said Bino. I'm sorry about the th- 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 this, it said, but it is for the good of the city. It is nothing per-per-per-personal. He stepped behind the clown. Bino felt a crunch, and then his own personal internal universe switched off. Then he sat up. Ow, he said. That her But it didn't. Edward de Eth was looking down at him with a horrified expression. Oh. "'Oh, I didn't mean to hit you that hard. "'I only wanted you out of the way. "'Why'd you have to hit me at all?' "'And then the feeling stole over Beano "'that Edward wasn't exactly looking at him "'and certainly wasn't talking to him. "'He glanced at the ground "'and experienced that peculiar sensation "'known only to the recently dead, "'horror at what you see lying in front of you, "'followed by the nagging question, "'So who's doing the looking?' "'Knock, knock!' He looked up. Who's there? Death. Death who? There was a chill in the air. Bino waited. Edward was frantically patting his face. Well, what until recently had been his face? I wonder, can we start again? I don't seem to have the hang of this. Sorry, said Bino. I'm so, 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 so sorry, moaned Edward. I meant it for the best. Bino watched his murderer drag his... the... body... away. "'Nothing personal,' he says,' he said. "'I'm glad it wasn't anything personal. "'I should hate to think I've just been killed because it was personal.' "'It's just that it has been suggested that I should be more of a people person.' "'I mean, why? "'I thought we were getting on really well. "'It's very hard to make friends in my job. "'In your job, too, I suppose.' Break it to them gently, as it were. One minute walking along, the next minute dead. Why? Think of it more as being dimensionally disadvantaged. The shade of Bino the Clown turned to death. What are you talking about? You're dead. Yes, I know. Bino relaxed and stopped wondering too much about the events in an increasingly irrelevant world. Death found that people often did after the initial confusion. After all, the worst had already happened, at least with any luck. If you would care to follow me. Mm, Will there be custard pies? Eh, Red nosies, juggling? Are there likely to be baggy trousers? No. Beano had spent almost all his short life as a clown. He smiled grimly under his makeup. I like it. Vimes's meeting with the patrician ended, as all such meetings did, with the guest going away in possession of an unfocused yet nagging suspicion that he'd only just escaped with his life. Vimes trudged on to see his bride-to-be. He knew where she would be found. The sign scrawled across the big double gates in Morphic Street said, Here be dragons. The brass plaque beside the gates said, the Ark Sunshine Sanctuary for Sick Dragons. There was a small and hollow and pathetic dragon made out of papier-mâché and holding a collection box, chained very heavily to the wall, and bearing the sign, Don't Let My Flame Go Out. This was where Lady Sybil Ramkin spent most of her days. She was, Vimes had been told, the richest woman in Ark morpork In fact, she was richer than all the other women in Ark morpork rolled, if that were possible, into one. It was going to be a strange wedding, people said. Vimes treated his social superiors with barely concealed distaste because the women made his head ache and the men made his fists itch, and Sybil Ramkin was the last survivor of one of the oldest families in Ankh, but they'd been thrown together like twigs in a whirlpool and had yielded to the inevitable. When he was a little boy, Sam Vimes had thought that the very rich ate off gold plates and lived in marble houses. He'd learned something new. The very, very rich could afford to be poor." "'Sibyl Ramkin lived in the kind of poverty that was only available to the very rich. "'A poverty approached from the other side. "'Women who were merely well-off saved up and bought dresses made of silk edged with lace and pearls. "'But Lady Ramkin was so rich, she could afford to stomp around the place in rubber boots and a tweed skirt that had belonged to her mother. "'She was so rich, she could afford to live on biscuits and cheese sandwiches. "'She was so rich, she lived in three rooms in a thirty-four-roomed mansion.' The rest of them were full of very expensive and very old furniture, covered in dust sheets. The reason that the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month, plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two, and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots Vimes always bought, and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the copples. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford fifty dollars had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in ten years' time, while a poor man, who could only afford cheap boots, would have spent a hundred dollars on boots in the same time, and would still have wet feet. This was Captain Samuel Vimes's boots theory of socio-economic unfairness. The point was that Sybil Ramkin hardly ever had to buy anything. The mansion was full of this big, solid furniture bought by her ancestors. It never wore out. She had whole boxes full of jewellery which just seemed to have accumulated over the centuries. Vimes had seen a wine cellar that a regiment of speleologists could get so happily drunk in that they wouldn't mind that they'd got lost without a trace. Lady Sybil Ramkin lived quite comfortably from day to day by spending, Vimes estimated, about half as much as he did. But she spent a lot more on dragons. The Sunshine Sanctuary for Sick Dragons was built with very, very thick walls and a very, very lightweight roof, an idiosyncrasy of architecture normally only found elsewhere in firework factories. And this is because the natural condition of the common swamp dragon is to be chronically ill. And the natural state of an unhealthy dragon is to be laminated across the walls, floor and ceiling of whatever room it is in. A swamp dragon is a badly run, dangerously unstable chemical factory one step from disaster. One quite small step. It has been speculated that its habit of exploding violently when angry, excited, frightened or merely plain bored is a developed survival trait to discourage predators. From the point of view of the species as a whole, not from the point of view of the dragon now landing in small pieces around the landscape. "'Eat dragons,' it proclaims, "'and you'll have a case of indigestion to which the term blast radius will be appropriate.'" Vimes therefore pushed the door open carefully. The smell of dragons engulfed him. It was an unusual smell, even by Ankh-Morpork's standards. It put Vimes in mind of a pond that had been used to dump alchemical waste for several years and then drained. Small dragons whistled and yammered at him from pens on either side of the path. Several excited gusts of flame sizzled the hair on his bare shins. He found Sybil Ramkin with a couple of the miscellaneous young women in breeches who helped run the sanctuary. They were generally called Sarah or Emma, and all looked exactly the same to Vimes. They were struggling with what seemed to be an irate sack. She looked up as he approached. Ah, here's Sam, she said. Hold this, there's a lamb. The sack was thrust into his arms. At the same moment, a talon ripped out of the bottom of the sack and scraped down his breastplate in a spirited attempt to disembowel him. A spiky-eared head thrust its way out of the other end, two glowing red eyes focused on him briefly, a tooth-serrated mouth gaped open, and a gush of evil-smelling vapour washed over him. Lady Ramkin grabbed the lower jaw triumphantly and thrust the other arm up to the elbow down the little dragon's throat. Got you! she turned to Vimes, who was still rigid with shock. "'Little devil wouldn't take his limestone tablet. "'Swallow, swallow. "'There. "'Who's a good boy, then? "'You can let him go now.' "'The sack slipped from Vime's arms. "'Bad case of flameless gripe,' said Lady Ramkin. "'Hope we've got it in time.' "'The dragon ripped its way out of the sack "'and looked around for something to incinerate. "'Everyone tried to get out of the way. "'Then its eyes crossed and it hiccuped. "'The limestone tablet pinged off the opposite wall.' "'Everybody down!' "'They leapt for such cover as was provided by a water trough and a pile of clinkers. "'The dragon hiccuped again and looked puzzled. "'Then it exploded. "'They stuck their heads up when the smoke had cleared "'and looked down at the sad little crater. "'Lady Ramkin took a handkerchief out of a pocket of her leather overall "'and blew her nose. "'Silly little bugger!' she said. "'Oh, well, how are you, Sam? "'Did you get to see Havelock?' Vimes nodded. Never in his life, he thought, would he get used to the idea of the patrician of Ark having a first name, or that anyone could ever know him well enough to call him by it. "'I've been thinking about this dinner tomorrow night,' he said desperately. "'You know, I really don't think I can.' "'Don't be silly,' said Lady Ramkin. "'You'll enjoy it. It's time you met the right people. You know that.' He nodded mournfully. "'We shall expect you up at the house at eight o'clock, then,' she said. "'And don't look like that.' "'It'll help you tremendously. "'You're far too good a man to spend his nights "'traipsing around the dark, wet streets. "'It's time you got on in the world.' "'Vimes wanted to say that he liked "'traipsing around the dark, wet streets, "'but it would be no use. "'He didn't like it much. "'It was just what he'd always done. "'He thought about his badge in the same way "'as he thought about his nose. "'He didn't love it or hate it. "'It was just his badge. "'So you just run along. "'It'll be terrific fun. "'Have you got a handkerchief?' Vimes panicked. What? Give it to me. She held it close to his mouth. Spit, she commanded. She dabbed at a smudge on his cheek. One of the interchangeable Emmas gave a giggle that was just audible. Lady Ramkin ignored it. There, she said. That's better. Now off you go and keep the streets safe for all of us. And if you want to do something really useful, you could find Chubby. Chubby. He got out of his pen last night. A dragon. Vimes groaned and pulled a cheap cigar out of his pocket. Swamp dragons were becoming a minor nuisance in the city. Lady Ramkin got very angry about it. People would buy them when they were six inches long and a cute way of lighting fires, and then when they were burning the furniture and leaving corrosive holes in the carpet, the floor, and the cellar ceiling underneath it, they'd be shoved out to fend for themselves. We rescued him from a blacksmith in Easy Street, said Lady Ramkin. I said, my good man, you can use a forge like everyone else, poor little thing. Chubby, said Vimes, got a light. He's got a blue collar, said Lady Ramkin. Right, yes. He'll follow you like a lamb if he thinks you've got a charcoal biscuit. Right. Vimes patted his pockets. They're a little bit overexcited in this heat. Vimes reached down into a pen of hatchlings and picked up a small one, which flapped its stubby wings excitedly. It spurted a brief jet of blue flame. Vimes inhaled quickly. Sam, I really wish you wouldn't do that. Sorry. So if you could get young Carrot and that nice Corporal Nobbs to keep an eye out for me, no problem. For some reason, Lady Sybil, keen of eye in every other respect, persisted in thinking of Corporal Nobbs as a cheeky, lovable rascal. It had always puzzled Sam Vimes. It must be the attraction of opposites. "'The Ramkins were more highly bred than a hilltop bakery, "'whereas Corporal Nobbs had been disqualified from the human race for shoving. "'As he walked down the street in his old leather and rusty mail "'with his helmet screwed on his head "'and the feel of the cobbles through the worn soles of his boots "'telling him where he was in Acre Alley, "'no one would have believed that they were looking at a man "'who was very soon going to marry the richest woman in Arkmore morpork "'Chubby was not a happy dragon. "'He missed the forge.' He'd quite liked it in the forge. He'd got all the coal he could eat, and the blacksmith hadn't been a particularly unkind man. Chubby had not demanded much out of life, and had got it. Then this large woman had taken him away and put him in a pen. There had been other dragons around. Chubby didn't particularly like other dragons, and people had given him unfamiliar coal. He'd been quite pleased when someone had taken him out of the pen in the middle of the night. He'd thought he was going back to the blacksmith.' Now it was dawning on him that this was not happening. He was in a box. He was being bumped around. And now he was getting angry. Sergeant Colon fanned himself with his clipboard and then glared at the assembled guards. He coughed. (sighs) Right then, people, he said. Settle down. We all settle down, Fred, said Corporal Nobbs. That's sergeant to you, Nobby, said Sergeant Colon. What do we have to sit down for anyway? We didn't use to do all this. I feel a right book sitting down listening to you going on about. we got to do it proper now there's more of us, said Sergeant Cullen. Right. him. Right. OK. We welcome to the guard today Lance Constable Detritus. Don't salute. And Lance Constable Cuddy, also Lance Constable Angua. We hope you will have a long... A- What's that you've got there, Cuddy? What? said Cuddy innocently. I can't help noticing that you still has got there what appears to be a double-headed throwing axe, Lance Constable, despite what I vouchsafed to you earlier, re-guard rules. Cultural weapon, Sergeant, said Cuddy, hopefully. You can leave it in your locker. Guards carry one sword, short, and one trenchant. With the exception of detritus, he added, mentally. Firstly, because even the longest sword nestled in the troll's huge hand like a toothpick. And secondly, because until they'd got this saluting business sorted out, he wasn't about to see a member of the watch nail his own hand to his ear. He'd have a truncheon and like it. Even then he'd probably beat himself to death. Trolls and dwarfs, dwarfs and trolls. He didn't deserve it, not at his time of life, and that wasn't the worst of it. He coughed again. When he read from his clipboard, it was in the sing-song voice of someone who learned his public speaking at school. Right, he said again, a little uncertainly. So, says here, Sergeant, now what? Oh, it's you, Corporal Carrot, yes. Aren't you forgetting something, Sergeant? said Carrot. I don't know, said Colon cautiously. Am I? About the recruits, Sarge, something they've got to take, Carrot prompted. Sergeant Colon rubbed his nose. Let's see. They had, as per standing orders, taken and signed for one shirt, mail, chain, one helmet, iron, copper, one breastplate, iron, except in the case of Lance Constable Angua, who'd need to be fitted special, and Lance Constable Detritus, who'd signed for a hastily adapted piece of armour which had once belonged to a war elephant, one truncheon, oak, one emergency pike or halberd. One crossbow, one hourglass, one short sword, except for Lance Constable Detritus, and one badge. Office of Night Watchman's Copper. I think they've got the lot, Carrot, he said. All signed for. Even Detritus has got someone to make an X for him. They've got to take the oath, Sarge. Oh, er, uh, have they? Yes, Sarge, it's the law. Sergeant Colon looked embarrassed. It probably was the law at that. "'Carrot was much better at this sort of thing. "'He knew the laws of Ankh-Morpork by heart. "'He was the only person who did. "'All Colon knew was that he'd never taken an oath when he joined, "'and as of a the best he'd ever get to an oath "'was something like, bugger this for a game of soldiers. "'All right, then,' he said. "'You've all er uh, got to take the oath, uh, "'and uh, Corporal Carrot will show you how. "'Did you take the oath uh, when you joined us, Carrot?' "'Oh, yes, Sarge. "'Only no one asked me, so I gave it to myself, quiet-like.' Oh, right, uh, carry on then. Carrot stood up and removed his helmet. He smoothed down his hair, then he raised his right hand. Raise your right hands too, he said. Er uh, that's the one nearest Lance Constable Angua, Lance Constable Detritus. And repeat after me. He closed his eyes and his lips moved for a moment as though he was reading something off the inside of his skull. I, comma, square bracket, recruit's name, square bracket, comma. He nodded at them. You say it. They chorused a reply. Angua tried not to laugh. Do solemnly swear by square bracket recruits deity of choice square bracket? Angua couldn't trust herself to look at Carrot's face. To uphold the laws and ordinances of the city of ankh serve the public trust, comma and defend the subjects of his stroke-her bracket-delete-whichever-is-inappropriate-bracket-majesty-bracket-name-of-reigning-monarch-bracket. Angua tried to look at a point behind Carrot's ear. On top of everything else, Detritus's patient monotone was already several dozen words behind everyone else. Without fear, comma, favour comma, or thought of personal safety, to pursue evildoers and protect the innocent comma, laying down my life if necessary, in the cause of said duty, comma, so help me bracket, aforesaid deity, bracket, full stop, gods, save the king, stroke, queen, bracket, delete whichever is inappropriate, bracket full stop. Angua subsided gratefully, and then did see Carrot's face. There were unmistakable tears trickling down his cheek. Er, right, that's it then. Thank you, said Sergeant Colon after a while. Protect the innocent, comma. In your own time, Lance Constable Detratus. The sergeant cleared his throat and consulted the clipboard again. "'Now, Grabber Hoskins has been let out of jail again, so be on the lookout. "'You know what he's like when he's had his celebratory drink "'and bloody coalface, the Troll beat up four men last night.' "'In the cause of said duty, comma?' "'Where's Captain Vimes?' demanded Nobby. "'He should be doing this.' "'Captain Vimes is a uh, uh, certain things out,' said Sergeant Colon. "'It's not easy learning in right?' He glanced at his clipboard again and back to the guardsman. Men. <laughs> his lips moved as he counted. There, sitting between Nobby and Constable Cuddy, was a very small, raggedy man whose beard and hair were so overgrown and matted together that he looked like a ferret peering out of a bush. Me, bracket, aforesaid deity, bracket, full stop. Oh, no, he said. What are you doing here, here and now? Thank you, Detritus. Don't salute. You can sit down now. Mr. Carrot brings me in, said here and now. Protective custody, Sarge, said Carrot. Again? Colon unhooked the cell keys from their nail over the desk and tossed them to the thief. All right, cell three. Take the keys in with you. We'll horror if we need him back. You're a tough, Mr. Colon, said here and now, wandering down the steps to the cells. Colon shook his head. "'Worst thief in the world,' he said. "'He doesn't look that good,' said Angua. "'No, I mean the worst,' said Colon. "'As in, not good at it.' "'Remember when he was going to go all the way up to dumb manifesting "'to steal the secret of fire from the gods?' said Nobby. "'And I said, "'But we've got it here and now. "'We've had it for thousands of years,' said Carrot. "'And he said,' That's right, so it has antique value. Fingers Mazda, the first thief in the world, stole fire from the gods, but he was unable to fence it, it was too hot. He got really burned on that deal. Poor old chap, said Sergeant Colon. Okay, what else have we got? Yes, Carrot? Now they've got to take the king's shilling, said Carrot. Right, yes, okay. Colon fished in his pocket and took out three sequin sized Ankh Morpork dollars, which had about the gold content of seawater. He tossed them one at a time to the recruits. This is called the King's Shilling, he said, glancing at Carrot. Dunno why. You gotta get give it when you join. Regulations, see? Shows you've joined. He looked embarrassed for a moment and then coughed. Right. Ah, uh, oh yeah. Load a uh, uh, rock, um, some trolls he corrected himself, got some kind of march down Short Street. Lance Constable Detritus, don't let him salute, right? What's this all about, then? "'It's Troll New Year,' said Detritus. "'Is it? Suppose we've got to learn about this sort of thing now. "'And says here there's this Gritsuck, uh, this, uh, dwarf rally or something?' "'Battle of Coombe Valley Day,' said Constable Cuddy. "'Famous victory over the trolls.' He looked smug insofar as anything could be seen behind the beard. "'Yeah, from ambush,' grunted Detritus, glowering at the dwarf. "'What?' "'It was the trolls,' Cuddy began. "'Shut up,' said Colon. "'Look, it says here, it says here they're marching, "'it says they're marching up Short Street,' he turned the paper over. "'Is this right?' "'Trolls going one way, dwarfs going the other,' said Carrot. "'Now there's a parade you don't want to miss.' said Nobby. "'What's wrong?' said Angua. Carrot waved his hands vaguely in the air. "'Oh, dear. It's going to be dreadful. We must do something.' "'Dwarfs and trolls get along like a house on fire,' said Nobby. "'Ever been in a burning house, miss?' Sergeant Colon's normally red face had gone pale pink. He buckled on his sword belt and picked up his truncheon. "'Remember,' he said, "'let's be careful out there.' yeah said nobby, let's be careful to stay in here end of c d one